Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tales from a Vet Tech with me, Tabitha Kusera. Today, we are talking about a very sensitive but important topic. So trigger warning, this episode discusses suicide and mental health, a topic we never shed away from on Tales from a Vet Tech. But of course, if this topic makes you uncomfortable or if you're not in a place where you can listen to content regarding this, please consider listening to a different episode. If you or someone you know has a mental illness, if you're struggling emotionally or have concerns about your or their mental health, there are ways to get help. We will definitely be posting some resources in the show notes, but please remember that you are not alone and that it's okay to seek out help. Megan, thank you so much for being here and talking to me about this very important yet sometimes challenging to speak about topic. Yeah, thanks for having me. So as you guys all know at Tales from a Vet Tech, mental health is something that is very important to me. I feel mental health and physical health are the same thing in our animal friends, but in us as well. And Unfortunately, um, recently we are losing colleagues and friends daily to suicide, but recently we lost Ashley, which some of you may be familiar with. She was a, a beautiful, amazing human being. She ran the social media youngest old cat lady, and we lost her to suicide, and this has started a lot of important conversations. Um, first talking about what an amazing, beautiful person she is and how she will continue to inspire us all to not only be better for our feline friends, but to each other. Um, and she was very open with her mental health and I am as well. And I think that those are very important things that we should be doing in, in all fields. But as we all know, in animal welfare and veterinary medicine and behavior, um, these are challenging careers, and um, unfortunately, we are seeing suicide a lot. I am losing a friend or a colleague at this point probably at least every other week, um, and I wish I was exaggerating, guys. Uh, I'm not. So it's it's a really big problem, and it's one of the big reasons I talk about mental health so much, um, and I reached out to Megan. This is something I wanted to talk about for a while. Um, and Megan is a therapist, so she is definitely more more appropriate to, to speak about this. But of course, this is a very sensitive subject. And I'm only going to be speaking of my experiences. And I can't speak for other people. But hopefully, this episode helps you either talk to others and support others who may be dealing with suicidal thoughts or feelings help you to address that mental health is health and isn't not something that we should not treat as health or be ashamed of. Um, and also to just recognize that you're fucking amazing and you are not alone. So I'm just gonna, I've been reflecting a lot the last few weeks, like a lot, a lot. Um, and at first I was kind of not addressing that I was grieving, um, even though I try to be very aware of my emotions. But then I kind of was on a run and I listened to a, another podcast that comedians do in the UK called Parenting Hell. And for some reason, that episode that day happened within that week. I needed to hear it because he just shared that he recently started anti-anxiety meds along with other changes to help address his anxiety. and he used a really beautiful analogy that it's like trying without the medication for him. It's like trying to change a tire while driving down the highway 100 miles an hour. And I was like, that is just so perfectly said. And then again, these are just comedians who I love and they were just sharing their experience. And it was just what I needed that day. And he also mentioned, like, it's interesting that when you're severely stressed, the first thing for us to dismiss is our basic physical and mental needs. And all of this 
resonated for me so much. Like I'll work 14 hour days in vet med and be like, I can't pee. You can fucking pee. Um, and you should fucking pee. Uh, or I can't go outside and take a deep breath. Yes, you can. And you should, and you'll be better for it. And the animals you work with will be better for it. But again, it's taken me a really long time to come to terms with these things. Um, and also by listening to that episode, it was just what I needed. So I cried a lot and I was like, I needed this. This was a cathartic cry, um, because I was grieving Ashley, but also, I recently found out that grief compounds. So when you lose someone, you feel all the losses that you have previously felt and it could feel worse and harder each time. So I was also grieving all my friends and colleagues and acquaintances who were suffering with their mental health and felt that the only thing that they could do due to their suffering was to take their own lives. And I allowed myself to grieve and I'm still allowing myself to grieve. And I'm sure many of you are out there grieving. So one of the things I would say is allow yourselves to grieve and to be in whatever space you need to be into. Because once I accepted that, uh, it made it easier to deal with, I guess. Um, and then before we really get started in talking about some common myths and how to support each other, I just wanted to share a post that I did share on social media um, about mental health on my chirps and chatter page, but also on my personal page and the amount of love and support I've received and people who said, thank you for sharing this. I, I'm bipolar and I can't tell anybody or I felt this way and I can't tell anybody. I just can't, I was overwhelmed with like positively with just like love and how important it just kind of reinforced how important these things are and how we need to be talking about it. So I'm just going to straight verbatim read the post, which isn't as fun. Um, but essentially, it just says mental health is health. I am bipolar and have struggled with mental health my whole life. Being in the animal welfare vet med field, compassion fatigue and burnout is added on to many of us who also have chronic mental health issues. Toxicity and judgment are common in those fields as well because many of us are struggling with compassion fatigue and burnout, which then results in toxicity and judgment and, and bitterness, which then continues to add more on. So I, I'm compassion fatigue and burnout are very severe problems in animal welfare and vet med, but I personally feel it's important to recognize that, for example, when I was suicidal and felt suicidal, yes, burnout, compassion fatigue was adding on to that, but it was adding on to my chronic mental health illness that I was already struggling with. So I'm not saying that it's not important to address compassion fatigue and burnout, but it's also not as simple as saying this is only burnout and compassion fatigue because really it's mental health and mental illness and not that mental illness not being managed well, which happens for a variety of reasons. So medications along with therapy has helped to give me the tools to be able to begin to create healthy coping mechanisms and take care of myself. This started with basic things, right? We have to start at a place where we can be successful. So getting out of bed, drinking water, and coming to terms with me just embracing my emotions. Like, I'm really bummed out today. That's cool, dude. Okay. Like, I'm accepting it. I'm not going to hold it down or hide it, which is what I used to do. Um, I came far in the last few years, and some days I still can't believe how far I came. I'm going to cry now. Uh, but I, I wish I would have gotten help sooner. In regards to meds, our brains, as well as our cats and dogs' brains, there are chemicals called neurotransmitters, and these send messages between nerve cells affecting the way we function, both physically and psycho psychologically. Certain neurotransmitters, such as norepinephrine, oh, fun words, guys, serotonin, dopamine, and GABA, are associated with mood. So anti-anxiety medications boost these levels of these different neurotransmitters, either by increasing their production and release from neurons and or blocking them from being reabsorbed back into the nerve cells, resulting in an overall happier, less anxious feeling, not just in us, but our pets too. So it's important to recognize that medication isn't a cure. There's no magical pill that will take the stress away, right? But prescription drugs are a tool that can help to decrease an animal or human's physical response to stress, which then leads to behavioral issues such as barking, destructiveness, 
or even self-harm. I'm speaking of dogs, but also self-harm, of course, and humans. Medication is used in addition to management, behavior modification, and under the supervision and direction of a veterinarian or doctor. I can only speak from my own experiences, but these tools have helped to lessen the darker times, and there is so much more light in my life. Being bipolar is one of my superpowers. I used to be really ashamed of it, and now I fucking love it about me. Um, my therapist was like, dude, you've owned it. Like, you've harnessed all the positives of bipolar. I can have 100 jobs. I can do them well. I'm very high energy, and that's just my baseline, um, which I love about me. But I also have the tools to manage the negative parts of bipolar. So essentially, I just go on to say, friends, if you struggle, you are not alone, and there's help out there. Everyone, it's cliche, but like I say, don't be a dick. <laughs> be kind to one one another. Um, it took years for me to find help, uh, but there is help, and you matter, and you are loved, and I'm not going to cry. Um, so that was a really long beginning and all over the place. So please be patient with me because this is a very sensitive subject to all of us, and I probably will cry throughout the episode. Um but and I just want to say before we say anything else, I just want to say I love you and you are one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. So I love you too. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I really appreciate you reading that just because I think it's just different reading it, uh, hearing you read it as opposed to reading it on the screen. So I, I it was I think it was just really great hearing you say that. So thank, thank you, you for reading that. <laughs> See, my friends are the best. Everyone's the best. Yeah. Um, so on that note, since we kind of touched on just my personal experiences, we all are aware of why this topic is so important. But I I know that you got some general rates and statistics to kind of give us an idea. I'm sure we are all familiar with how common it is, but as a kind of starting point to start talking about and then also kind of some how we can address some of those really common myths that some of us and some of us may not be familiar with. Yeah. So I know we've been talking about this topic and doing this episode for a very long time. And so when we, you know, kind of were talking about, let's, let's do this, let's have this conversation. I think one of the first things that I really wanted to do was just research a little bit and kind of see what's out there specific, um, you know, to rates and things like that. And there's, there's lots of research on the topic of suicide and, um, I was really interested specifically in occupation because there are a lot of studies out there about um, looking at suicide rates based on different occupations. And so um, I'm just going to cite one statistic that I had found. And this article um, was published in 2015. So I think keep, you know, keep that in mind just because that's you know, pre-pandemic and um, research takes a couple of years to get published often. So, you know, just you know, thinking about the, there's probably some other stuff out there as well that could be very useful. But um, this, I think, just kind of gives a good picture of just seeing that how, I, you know, just by profession, how that could look different. So this article just talked a little bit about um, that the rate of suicide, specifically in the veterinary profession, so it's focusing on them in particular, but has been pegged as close to twice that of the dental profession. Um, more than twice that of the medical profession, and four times the rate in, of the general population. So um, I've always, I don't know about you, but I've always kind of heard about when I hear about suicide and occupation, I've always heard about um, dental profession and medical profession being very high. Um, and then kind of, I guess, seeing that was was really surprising for me. And just hearing that it's four times the rate um, of, the, you know, compared to the general population, I think is is pretty high. So, um, you know, just, I think it's good to be, you know, seeing where we're starting, like we're, you know, we're talking about people that are working with animals or, you know, maybe people in the vet veterinary profession, um, you know, the, the rate of suicide can definitely be higher. Um, and I, I imagine that looks very different now too, compared to, you know, back in 2015, but, um, yeah. yeah. Do you have and any I, thoughts on that? By the yeah, way? I think. Thankfully, as a as a field, we are starting to talk about it um, and address the the I don't want to say elephant in the room because to me it's not an elephant. It's kind of like when people are like, "Cat's pain is subtle," and I'm like, "No, it's not. Uh, uh, it actually screams out at us. We just need to learn how to identify it." Um, and I I I'm not saying that that's the same with suicide, but the pandemic of suicide in our profession does scream out at us. Um, obviously it's a very complex topic 
and it's very individual specific and context specific, but um, it's a very big problem. And like I said, I, I think it's great that we're starting to address it. And it's a very big problem in the animal welfare world as well. And there is less research out there on that, but we do have some. And obviously we know from experiences and my colleagues and my friends who also work in animal welfare, we're losing friends a lot um, mm -hmm. to them taking their own lives. So I think these stats and this data is important because it's helping people recognize how severe this is. Because I think if you're in the field or even sometimes people in the field didn't, unfortunately, uh, don't recognize uh, how severe it is. So I think that, like you said, it's a good starting point to kind of get us to be like, hey, guys, this is a pandemic. This is no joke. We need to start taking care of each other. We need to start talking about suicide. We need to be aware of how to talk about it because this is not something we can just ignore anymore. Um, not that I feel like anyone was doing that maliciously five years ago, but um, – because I get it. It's it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but we can't ignore it. And I think one of the biggest things, if we just say the truth and address that mental health is health, uh, uh, that is a, 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 a big just saying that just changing the narrative in your brain and recognizing that mental health is health is going to be so helpful and powerful in every interaction you have with your colleagues, other people. Um, your friends. So I think that that's a great starting point. Yeah. And I, th I think one of the other reasons I really kind of liked this, uh, this specific article, and we'll link to it in the, the show notes and everything. So if anyone wants to kind of look this up later, but um, it talks about like specific myths um, that exist around suicide. I think that there's a lot that we could dive into around that. Um, but I, I highlighted a couple just to kind of bring up, I think are really relevant to our conversation. Um, so one myth that I have also heard a lot is um, the myth that talking about suicide may give someone the idea. So I know that, you know, some people may be afraid to use that word um, because they may be afraid that it might, you know, create that thought in someone's mind or increase the risk. But um, that's actually a myth. So um I think that's that's important to recognize that, you know, saying that word or talking or asking directly, um, you know, asking people directly about how they're feeling or um, about suicide in particular doesn't necessarily create that in their head. Um, so talking about it is a good thing um, and asking people. Um, so another myth, too, around um, kind of talking about suicide, people who talk about suicide should not be taken seriously. So that is a myth. Um, suicidal talk, you know, I think sometimes people may write it off as sometimes being uh, attention seeking, or they may not take it seriously. But anytime someone's talking about ending their life, it should definitely be taken seriously. Um, and we're going to talk, I think, a little bit later, too, about some of the, the ways that right. you, you do have someone in your life that you are concerned about, or that you want to have conversations with some of the the tools or conversation pieces that you can use um, and certain things to avoid as well. Um, so, yes. Yeah. And I um, think about uh, just to add, like when it comes to the common myth of talking about suicide may give someone the idea because I, I hear that myth a lot. And I think even people who may be worried about their friends or colleagues, they're afraid to use that word. And unfortunately, um, if, if I'm afraid to use that word, they're probably afraid to tell me they're feeling suicidal. So that can be really damaging for, for obvious reasons because we need to start having those conversations. But also it's it's really important for us to be destigmatizing the feelings of suicide. I mean, many people, it is normal to feel suicidal at some point in your life. Many, 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 many people. There is research on this. I do not have it, but I will look it up after because uh, I've read it before. Um, a lot of people, suicide goes through their brain. And that's that's sometimes something that can happen. And many people don't talk about it. Sometimes it passes. Um, sometimes it's just a quick thought. Sometimes it's more severe. But again, I think destigmatizing just that word by itself Mm -hmm. Um, by talking about it is going to be super powerful. Cause again, I remember when I was not 
feeling I wasn't in a good place and I was suicidal and I did not want to tell anybody. One, I was ashamed. I felt like I should be stronger and all these other things that aren't ideal, um, but it's what I felt. But also, I didn't want to worry anybody. I'm just speaking of my own experience. Um, And then once I started talking about it, I felt better so much sooner. And I realized that it, it wasn't the people I spoke to. It wasn't stigmatized. They were very understanding and open. And just having that conversation is what got me to getting some of the more significant help that I needed to get me on the path where to where I am today. So that was just a note on that. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. I think it is important to recognize that, right, suicidal ideation or thinking about suicide is a very common experience for people. So yeah. And another another really common myth that's out there too is that most suicides are caused by one sudden traumatic event. And, you know, while that definitely can be the case, um, and, you know, there are definitely ways that it happens, you know, where maybe it's the gradual buildup of things over a long period of time. It doesn't always have to look, you know, where maybe one single thing happened and then, um, you know, someone had ended their life. So I think that that's important to think about, that it doesn't always look one singular way. But yeah, there's there's lots of other um, myths out there. I, I think we don't really have to dive into all of them, but those are some really common ones that I've definitely been I've heard before or, you know, um, just have kind of come up frequently. And then obviously this is a very complex topic, but as far as risk factors, but also protective factors, because yes. um, me and Megan were chatting uh, ahead of the podcast and we both agreed that we hear a lot about risk factors, which are very important, but we don't hear a lot about protective factors, which I, I'll be honest, I've never even heard the term until she mentioned it to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is, we should definitely be talking about those more. So could you go a little bit more into both of those topics? Yeah, absolutely. So risk factors, I agree. I think a lot of times that's what you hear when it comes to suicide is you, well, what are the risk factors for this person? And risk factors can be looked at in a range of ways. So I really like um, the CDC's conceptualization of this. So they talk a lot about these different levels um, of risk. So there's kind of this individual level factors, um, these relationship level, community level, and societal level. So kind of like the circles going out And individual level factors, risk factors could be things like having a serious illness or a history of depression or other mental illness or substance use. Um, Relationship level risk factors are things like um, high conflict, being in like a high conflict or a violent relationship, being socially isolated, experiencing bullying, things along those lines. Community level risk factors could be experiencing discrimination, a lack of access to healthcare, historical trauma. Um, societal level could be um, around the stigma with help seeking or maybe something along the lines of media portrayals of suicide. So there's these different risk factors at these you know different levels. And there is a lot of research on risk factors. And protective factors are the piece that I definitely feel like I don't hear nearly as much about, but are very, very important as well. So protective factors, Um, are the factors that can actually reduce the risk for suicide and help protect people from suicide. Um, So those are things that we really want to be increasing those experiences and those things in people's lives, Um, being very proactive on trying to build up those pieces. So this also kind of follows that same, the same levels. You can think about it on those different, um, you know, those different circles. So at the individual level, what that could look like is, Um, effective coping skills and problem solving, maybe having a strong cultural identity. Um, Relationship level protective factors could be support from loved ones um, or feeling connected to others. Uh, Community level could be feeling connected to your school or community or any other social institutions. Um, Availability of high quality physical and behavioral health care. And societal level, um, reduced access to lethal means of suicide and cultural, religion, or moral objections to suicide. So there's, and these are all like straight from the CDC. We'll also link to to this webpage if you guys kind of want to read more about that. But I think that um, it's really important to highlight not only, you know, 
focusing on what are these risk factors and things, you know, to be considering, but what are protective factors that we can look for in people that, that exist and that we can kind of build up or create more of. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, in my last podcast episode with Aaron, we talked about psychological safety and creating that in the workplace. And that definitely factors in here. So there are, are things that we can do even working in an animal welfare organization, a shelter, a vet clinic that can help to increase some of these factors. There are some things that we can do to help create community between, which again, Aaron mentioned a lot of these things on the last episode. Uh, so I love that connection. Oh my gosh. Um, but I obviously have created a lot of coping mechanisms and problem solving skills, which has helped me a lot. Um, I do have support from loved ones. I love connecting with people. And thankfully, I get to connect with people at conferences. And almost every week I get to connect with it's just so amazing and fulfilling. And I just love it. And I know other people do, too. I feel very connected to my community. Um, and then as far as the risk factors, I've I've worked to the best of my ability to address those risk factors that I have had. We won't get into that. Um, <laughs> but obviously, everyone has a different learning history and genetic workup and, and all of these things that affect them. Um, like, for example, this is one thing I talked about in a previous episode. My dad was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So the likelihood that I was going to have some sort of mental illness genetically was high. Um, and that's how I, with that information, I use that to help get the appropriate diagnosis for my bipolar disorder. And some people do don't know their family history or they don't necessarily have a strong identity or are aware of what their identity even is, which is actually affecting a lot of different groups right now and has been for such a long time. And again, thankfully, that's another thing that we are finally starting to talk about and address so in vet med and animal welfare, there are a lot of things that you can do to help increase these beautiful protective factors. So I, I love, I'm going to use that word all the time now. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like it's just something that is, it's not as balanced. I feel, I just feel like it doesn't come up as often or it's not focused on as much. And it is something really to look at and consider. And I think you bring up a really good point too, about that. Um, some of these things, right? Like when you think about like, what is your ability to have control over influence these areas, right? There, there may be certain parts, you know, in, when thinking about these different levels, like the individual level, the relationship level, the community level, the societal level, like some of those pieces are really big and go outside of yourself, right? And so it can be really hard to think about, you know, what, where are those spaces where I have, you know, some influence um, or, you know, can, can work within like what's in my control. So I know that that can be really difficult um, when you're, you know, if there's a lot of risk factors, you know, at the those levels, maybe at the societal level or the community level, um, it can it can be difficult. So it's just important to think about that too. Definitely, yeah. And as far as since many of us, obviously, we want to be supportive of our friends, of our colleagues. What are some? We're going to talk about some ways we can start the conversation because. Again, that's a huge thing, starting the conversation, because if everyone's different, but personally, again, I'm speaking of my experience, when you're in it and you're struggling to that severity, it's really hard to then go to people and say, hey, can you listen and be non-judgmental? Um, can you? It, it's really it's almost impossible. I mean, it's sometimes it's, it's hard to just get out of bed and shower, let alone seek people out to help you. Um, so again, that sometimes that can get misperceived as they don't want help, which is again, very problematic. And that is not the case. Um, it's just, we have to realize just like someone with a severe physical illness who may need assistance, possibly getting out of bed or, um, having, getting access to their bathroom. This is the same when you're struggling with a severe, like, for example, with me, when I was struggling with these bipolar down episodes, essentially, which I did not recognize was that uh, until a few years ago. I just thought I was really exhausted and I created all these narratives and um, that was not the case. So, so many of us, that's another thing. I, I 
heard a lot of feedback um, from a, amazing animal welfare and veterinary colleagues when I posted that. And a lot of them said, I just thought it was normal to feel like this. Um, and I, I think it's cool from a human standpoint. We're adaptive, right? Like it's cool because we adapt to keep going and to essentially get familiar or used to that situation. But also I'm, I get really upset at, not at me, but just at, just upset, which is okay. I just get upset that I, I was in these bipolar down episodes and I could not get out of bed or even check my phone. And if anyone knows me, y'all, I like my phone. I'm extroverted. I like to talk to people all the time. Even when I'm sad, everyone's different. And I used to just be like, oh, I'm just really exhausted. I'm overworking, which I probably was. That was one factor. But I would just sum all of that into overworking or exhaustion. And then when I realized and I would just normalize it, like Mm -hmm. this is how this is normal. This is how. And now that I'm I have all these healthy coping mechanisms and I've came really far and I'm aware of my emotions. I'm more aware of my emotions and have more emotional intelligence. I'm like, oh, my gosh, man. So many of us just normalize essentially not feeling good or for example, your life is great. Like, so you should feel great. Um, so it's not that simple. And I think it's really important once we see our way out and we find coping mechanisms, because some of us medications may be indicated. Some of us may not. Some of us just may need more outlets or support systems or the things that Megan was mentioning. But the normalization of some of these, like, you just feel like shit, you're fine. That word, guys, that fine word. Uh, or um, you just need to work less, which I'm not saying that isn't one factor, but that was something I I was told a lot mm-hmm. during those episodes um, by people who I love very much and love me. Um, but it wasn't that. And now it's funny because someone mentions it casually in a kind way, and I am so triggered. <laughs> um so I'm working on that because that's not appropriate. I can't just be like, I don't work too much. You're not like, that's not an appropriate response. But I've recognized like, I'm really sensitive to people saying, Tabitha, just work a little less. And it's not a harmful thing that that person is saying in that context at all. But because I heard it so much mm-hmm. when I was dealing with those really severe episodes, I am definitely like, Bleh, no, but uh, I'm working on it. So. Well, I think you bring up a good point too about like intention that, you know, sometimes people, their intention isn't to make it worse, right? Or to to frustrate you or anything like the intention may be like that they're trying to help or they're trying to, you know, they, they're, they're meaning well, um, but it's, it's not helping or it's not coming across in a way that's helpful. And so I think that that's, uh, it's important. And I think with some of these, you know, conversational tips and whatnot that we're going to talk about, it's good to be thinking about like, what are some things like some baseline things that you can do for someone that you're concerned about? Um, like how can you be there to support them? Um, you, you know, without taking it to a place where it would make them feel, um, like you're minimizing their experience or that you're trying to fix the problem or solve it for them. Um, I think being a good listener is so critical, um, with this. So, yeah. And I think that I love what you said about, um, not being a fixer. We all love fixing, even though that's not behavior. Like people are like, fix my dog. The trainer says, I'm going to fix your dog. I'm like, mm, that's a red flag run. Um, Get a second opinion, please. Because uh, it's not behavior. That's not how it works. But again, we mean well. We don't like to see our friends suffering or upset. And you may be actively trying to help, but it's important. Don't diagnose people. So it's helpful. You can give some information, but don't diagnose. Don't assume they have an illness or a condition. Could you provide them in a direction to resources where maybe they can get those if they are indicated or learn a little bit more about? Yes. But it's a very common thing where we're like, dude, you have ADHD, dude, especially now in social media world. Woo, it's rough. Uh, like there's TikToks, like five signs you have ADHD. I'm like, guys, whoa, 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 slow down. <laughs> like this is, I know this is funny and it's not malicious in most cases, but also your friend's struggling. And instead of listening, we're kind of just like diagnosing them. Um, and that, that, that is not a way to be supportive. So I do think 
listening is is huge. Just letting someone kind of really express their experiences. Um, and then, of course, being nonjudgmental, which sounds easy, right? But we have to realize that our body language is communicating as well. Um, and some of these conversations are challenging, but it is important to not criticize or minimize the way they feel with things like, for example, it can't be that bad, right? Or um, another phrase to avoid, which I think I could I I could see lots of people saying it. I I hope I haven't said it, but I probably have realistically to a friend in the last 10 years. But you have so much to live for. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I I'm almost positive I have said that to a friend who is struggling in like 10 years ago. Um, and I love that friend and I did not mean to essentially like my my intentions weren't negative, like Megan was mentioning, but what you're essentially saying now that I have understood, I've taken a lot more courses on this. Obviously, I'm very aware of my own mental health. And I think when you say you have so much to live for, you're essentially shaming uh, that person for suffering with a mental illness. That's like saying, dude, you have so much like you have so much to live for. I know you're painful 24 hours a day. Um, and your pain's not managed really well. Like it's you would never say that to somebody in that context. So I think it's important to avoid things like it can't be that bad or you can't do that to your family or you have so much to live for or you don't really want to do that. Um, but again, I can understand how those things can come out. But the way they're perceived, understandably, also is you're shaming them, you're judging them, you're not identifying that they are really struggling and suffering and people don't want to commit suicide. They don't want to take their own lives. That's not something that they want to do. So I think going into it, at least understanding they don't want to do this. They are suffering so severely with a mental health issue. So kind of taking away all that listening and being not judgmental and avoiding things like you have so much to live for. It can't be that bad, which is essentially kind of criticizing and minimizing how they feel. And then as far as not being judgmental, it's also important to ask what and not why. So when you're asking questions, it can be helpful to not ask why questions because sometimes asking why do you feel that way, right? It can have a judgmental tone even if you don't mean it that way. So I think that's a a great thing to remember when you're trying to be supportive and asking what and not why. Yeah, definitely. I think there's another couple of tips that really like stick out to me just because of like being a counselor. I think that, you know, the confidentiality around this always like is, is something to be thinking about. And I know like if, let's say if you're like talking to a friend, um, you know, that you're concerned about, I think trying to avoid promising, um, that you're going to keep things to yourself, you know, because there, there may be a situation, right. Where you, may need to break that kind of trust with that person to be able to keep them safe. I think that it's, it's natural, like with our friendships and things like that to, you know, this is a private conversation to, to want to keep that private between you. But I think trying to stray away from those like promises, like I promise that I'm never going to tell anyone or whatever, it may be good to avoid kind of that language, just because there may be situations where you're talking with your really good friend and you're realizing that like, you're really concerned about them and, you may be at a point where you may need to reach out and get help for that person. So I think it's important to think about that part of it too. Like if it were to get to a place where you needed to kind of break that confidentiality with that person. And of course I'm speaking as like in that friend position rather than the counselor position, but it always jumps out to me. And, you know, also that helping to connect them with professional help too. So like, you know, talking with them about options for, you know, with counseling or how can you help link them to resources like you, what you were saying earlier. Acting as a bridge, essentially, yeah. versus diagnosing them. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, yeah, trying to be there for them and provide them with like, these are some different options or whatever, right? Um, or, you know, some different sources of support that, you know, are different than talking to a friend. It, it just looks different. Definitely. And then obviously it's complex. It's important to be a teammate. So, of course, being a teammate doesn't mean we've already talked about like this whole we're going to fix you concept, but mental health is complicated. Solutions aren't overnight. And the best support that you can give is by listening 
not being judgmental, helping to navigate resources. So I love that act as a bridge kind of um, wording and then acting as a source of encouragement. So supporting them essentially. Um, And then as far as some phrases to start a conversation, because sometimes you may be worried about your friend or a colleague, because let's be honest, in animal welfare and vet med, we get close to each other uh, physically, mentally. um, (laughs) And when you work with somebody every day, you know what their baseline is, essentially. Um, Just like animals, right? If you notice that that staff member is late every day or is missing a lot of work, um, you're not going to say, dude, why aren't you coming to work? What's going on again? (laughs) Like, we're not going to say, or must be nice to have another day off. Like, of course, we're going to avoid things like that. I've never heard those things in in animal welfare, vet men. But, um, and instead you could say, or you may feel like they're a little more irritable or based on what their baseline is, or again, they might just not be themselves, which can be hard to describe, but you can kind of start by saying like, I feel like you haven't been yourself lately. I'm concerned about you. Can we talk? So it's, it's not abrasive. (laughs) It's not what's like, we need to figure this out right now. It's just like a casual, like introductory starting of the conversation. Or I know you've been having a tough time recently. Can you share what's been going on? Again, we're we're getting consent in all of these phrases. Uh, I really care about you and I feel like something is wrong. Um, can you tell me how I can help? Or um, I love the, can we talk versus telling me even, I love, can I tell, can you tell me how I can help? But I like, can we talk to start? Because you're just starting that, hey, I'm open. Because they might then feel comfortable enough to just start talking. And then I've been in that situation with colleagues, but also myself, where they literally just said, hey, I feel like you're you're a little off today or you're not feeling yourself today. Can we talk? And then I just bleh, and I felt so, I feel so much better um, afterwards. So I think just that one phrase to kind of start a conversation could be really powerful. Do you have any other additional recommendations? Well, I I love all those as well, because I think, and we've talked about I statements and things like that before in the past and previous episodes. So, but I think that it's really powerful to be able to say things like, you know, what, what you're feeling and what you're noticing, right? So the things like, like, I feel like you haven't been yourself lately. I'm concerned about you. Can we talk? Um, Starting from a place like from your own perspective and your own experience, um, I think is a really good beginning way, like a, a start you know, to be thinking about how to have that conversation. So all of those have that theme of the I something. Right. Um, So yeah, just thinking about how can you kind of use your voice um, and your voice, your concern and be direct and ask, you know, ask those questions. And then as far as some phrases to aid in the conversation. So you started the conversation, which honestly is one of the most challenging, but also easiest things. I think more and more resources out there are talking about, hey, let's, hey, you haven't been feeling yourself or, hey, I've noticed you have it, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and just start because starting that conversation is, is so powerful. But as far as some phrases to kind of aid in the conversation, once you're having it, you can say things like, how long have you felt like this? Have you been feeling hopeless? How are you coping with what's going on with, with your life? Obviously, they've started to share what's going on with their life. Um, once we say that, or, um, you were not alone with, with this, I'm here for you. That's a, I know we all say you're not alone, but the reason why we're all saying it, because it's a very powerful statement, because similar to the, um, risks that Megan was mentioning earlier, isolation will fuck you up. Even if your mental health is super stable, um, and you don't have a a history of mental health or a, uh, family history of mental health, um, feeling alone and isolated is crippling. So I think the whole just saying, you're not alone. I'm here for you. Um, obviously, you don't want to say that you're experiencing exactly what they're experiencing, because sometimes that can be minimizing their experience. Um, but obviously, you're going to get context because sometimes I'll be talking to someone and they are, they tell me that they experience that too. And it actually makes me feel a lot better. Um, so of course these conversations are complex and we should be 
assessing the body language in the other person. But I think you could say things about like, have you thought about getting help? That's a really great open-ended question. I want to call someone to help us. Um, so not just help them, but you're kind of including yourself in that support system. I think that those are some wonderful ways to kind of aid in the conversation once you've started it. Yeah, those are great. Yeah. And I think that, you know, other questions that are some of those more like direct ones, like questions that you can ask to things like, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Are you having, you know, thoughts about suicide? I think being direct, you know, in those moments where if, if you really want to, you, you know, you started that conversation, you're having, you know, this, this conversation with this person and you're at a point where you really want to ask about some of those very specific things. I think it's, you know, it's good to think about how to be direct about it. Yeah. And I, I, if someone, I love the abrupt, like, or not abrupt, but the more direct, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Are you having thoughts about suicide? Um, because again, we need to start talking about those things and people don't want to, to feel suicidal. It is not a choice as I'm sure you guys can understand, but me just talking with Megan and that's something I've never said out loud. And I, through us talking, I'm just like, oh my God. Yeah, of course. Um, so by asking people like, are you, you having thoughts about suicide? Are you thinking about hurting yourself? You could say like, for example, I've been asked those questions and I am, I'm like, yeah, and I'm scared. And it, it's fucking scary to want to hurt yourself, guys. It's not a, a great place to be. We don't want to feel that way. Again, I'm speaking my experiences, um, but I'm sure this is probably similar to other people. So I think having those conversations and asking things like directly in that way can be really powerful and helpful because when I have felt that way, I have felt that way, but I was so terrified that I felt that way, um, which then added to my anxiety. It's just like a, and then you, you kind of distance yourself from people and then you feel more alone and whoo. But I think that those are some great ways to start the conversation, some phrases to aid in the conversation. And then some, I know we touched on some phrases to ideally avoid, which again, I have, I know for a fact, I've probably said some of those things to my friends and this is where we get better. And and try to improve. And also there's a lot of great resources out there, like not one more vet. And we're going to share quite a few others, but I highly recommend, especially for everybody, but in the animal welfare and vet med field, taking a course or two, you know, on suicide prevention and how to have those conversations. And I mean, I would love, I do trauma-informed consulting with Megan um, at shelters and vet clinics. And sometimes will have where we talk about this stuff with the entire staff and hey once like may is mental health month obviously it's mental health month every month um but hey in may we're going to have uh a speaker come in or we're gonna all kind of debrief and discuss mental health in among each other based on what people are comfortable with but just talking about it is like I recently spoke at a shelter and guys, man, it was uh, I was talking about decreasing fear, anxiety and stress in animals, which I also start to talk about people because, again, if the animals are more stressed, we're more stressed, we're affected by it's just all it's all connected. And um, it ended up everyone felt so comfortable that we then started talking about that's just kind of where the conversation went. Um, and we started talking about compassion fatigue and burnout and um, other things, uh, including suicide. And it, there was a lot of crying and it was really powerful and they needed to talk about that. But that, first off, that was a great starting point for a conversation. It wasn't planned. That's where the the conversation went. But also I then went, met when I met with all of the management staff, we discussed that occurrence and we discussed, hey, okay, we need to start addressing the compassion fatigue and burnout of the staff. Here, let's talk about an action plan. How are we going to do this? What is that going to look like? So I'm all about decreasing FAS for the animals, but how are we going to decrease FAS for the staff? Um and I've I've spoken about those things at at, at shelters before, but that was just such a powerful 
experience for me. And I and then it, it made my heart hurt a little bit because I'm like, how many other people out there don't feel comfortable enough to come out or talk to people about how they're feeling? And then when they do, it just all comes out because no one's listened to them or it hasn't came up again in many cases, not maliciously. Um, but it was just really uh, eye opening and powerful to me. I just yeah, super sidetracked, but. Yeah, no, I think it's really important to think about how organizations and institutions can be more supportive of people um, and more preventative. And, um, you know, thinking about how does your organization, uh, you know, support support staff or, or help them, you know, if they are in a position where they do need to be linked with resources or what does that look like? I think it's always really good to be thinking about that, about what does your place of work do, um, you know, if this were to come up. What is, is there a protocol? Is there a procedure? Like how do, what does this look like? So I, I love the thinking about that institutional level or, you know, organizational level, like what those things look like and try and enhance that so that people do have a way that they feel, you know, that they can seek out help or that they are supported at work. You know, if, if something were to come up or if they were to express something at work. Yeah. Feeling listened to and supported is, is, so powerful because one of the things we talked about was after there's it happens in ER clinics all the time it's uh you deal with challenging things all day every day and after a significantly traumatic event whether this may be like a specific like animal abuse case or again it could look a lot of different ways that hey can we start doing a debrief of those obviously we can't debrief everything but can we just start doing a, a quick debrief of okay the vet team and the acos animal control officers dealt with this really traumatizing very sensitive difficult situation hey let's just touch base 15 minutes after like while we're here and debrief and talk about it it doesn't sound like much but that is so powerful um people feeling like they're being listened to hearing other people feel as upset as they do like that's just one thing that can be a really helpful tool among many others so um i i think yeah as organizations there's a lot we can do yeah and i'm a very big um supporter of supervision in in different settings so uh like for for example so i work for um early intervention so uh, we, the way that we have things, so it's, we're working with humans. So it's, you know, a little bit different than kind of how, (laughs) what we're talking about. Um, but so it's, we have our staff, they actually engage in reflective supervision. Um, so they have a supervisor that they meet with on a regular basis. And it's kind of a space for that, like debriefing. It's not, they're not providing counseling by any means. Right. It's definitely more of a, let's talk about you and your role. Um, and how you're experiencing your your job. Um, and so it's just like a, an open space for that uh, reflection on not just like their job performance or their skills or things like that, but also just like, how are you doing as a human in this work? Um, and I, I, I love that because it's kind of, it can be that like bridge, um, you know, we're talking about like if, if a supervisor feels that, you know, this person is expressing some things that I'm concerned about, or, you know, I, I feel like this, could be it could be useful to link this person with resources or whatever than that it's 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 someone that is a touch point for that person to to be able to help link them if if needed but it's a it's a space for them to be able to process some of what they're doing and i i don't really know what that looks like in in your world and all of that like you know at different shelters or you know i'm just not sure if what that looks like or if it even exists but i love that idea of having kind of um structured supervision in in some ways or places where debriefing can happen, where you can just have a space to talk and relate to one another. Um, I think it's great. I don't see it as often, um, (laughs) realistically. uh, But again, we, I call it practicing that med because we're always improving and getting better. And it's something I love a lot about my fields, animal welfare and vet med. So, um, And like I said, these are things that are being discussed now. Um, So at least the conversation is out there. The alarm for concern about how prevalent 
like essentially this is a pandemic in our field. And I know me and you talk about this a lot, but in animal welfare and vet med, it's it's all about the animals. And yes, guys, you guys know I love, I love, love, love animals, but it's also all about you. Um, and that's something where I feel like we really need to change gears um, and start to treat the humans that we work with as well as we treat the animals that we work with. But what a wonderful way to end the podcast. Yes. And we have lots of ideas and suggestions for organizations that are looking to do that. So lots of ideas about how that can kind of be integrated into those spaces where maybe that doesn't exist. Or I know it's it's hard because there's only so many hours in the day, but thinking of, yeah, where are spaces where you can create conversations or connections for people. It's, it's always a good thing to be thinking about. Definitely. And again, it, it came up kind of accidentally just because I talk about fear, anxiety, and stress in animals so much that I also talk about it in humans. And then it's I, I'm friends with Megan and we talk a lot about human and animal behavior and we nerd out about it. And then I was like, oh, there's not a lot of resources out there like this. This is really interesting. Like people should be doing more collabs and Because also listening to someone about compassion fatigue at a conference is really important, but it's also really important. I'm I'm sure other people can relate to this as well. You want that person to understand what you go through. And obviously it's not that simple, but me hearing from an an ER vet, for example, um, who has a background in mental human health, I'm going to be a lot more receptive than maybe a therapist coming in. And this isn't, I'm just, I love Megan very much and she's amazing. And we work together versus someone coming into my vet clinic. I have no experiences with us. Uh, and there it's essentially like a cookie cutter, toxic positivity. Right. <laughs> uh, like they're reading off a checklist of things to do. And unfortunately, I think many, including myself, many of us in animal welfare and vet med and other fields as well, tend to experience that more than actual genuine listening and practical things and bridges and resources, which is so much more powerful. But yeah, um, I really thank you, Megan, for being here to talk about this topic. A hard thing for me to talk about, but also not really. Uh, so it's just kind of all over the place because this is I'm not normalizing suicide, but also it's a normal occurrence in my fields. I'm losing colleagues and friends literally monthly. So I think the more of us talking about it, and that's the other thing, like it may not be perfect the way you talk about it, because I am recognizing that I'm all over the place. I'm anxious. I feel a lot of emotions right now. And it's not going to be perfect the way you talk about it, um, because I'm worried about that right now. Uh, but just telling people, hey, you're not alone, listening, letting them know that we're mental health is health. We're going to be de- working towards destigmatizing um, mental health medications, mental health illness, taking care of yourself. I know that sounds silly to destigmatize, but in animal welfare, woo, uh, taking like I would get yelled at or I would get like given shit when I took my one week vacation that I got. I got five days off in a whole year. And I would get shit for it. Dude, it's really common. Sorry. So be kind to yourselves. Uh, You are loved. I love you. (laughs) Um, And you matter. But you guys all know that because you're fucking amazing. Um, And I really appreciate you having having you on, Megan. We'll definitely share a lot of resources and have another Mental Health Matters episode soon. Yeah, thank you so much. If you or someone you know has a mental illness, is struggling emotionally or has concerns about their mental health, there are ways to get help. Call 911 if you or someone you know is in immediate danger or go to your nearest emergency room. Call or text 988 or use Lifeline Chat on the web. The Lifeline provides 24-hour confidential support to anyone in suicidal crisis or emotional distress. Call or text 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor. Please remember that you are not alone. There's help out there for you and your loved ones. And please speak to someone if you are in need of support. Thank you for listening. 